I wonder what comes to your mind when you hear the word Pharisee. I remember one time uh, a number of years ago, I was uh, bringing a message on uh, this topic, and I was speaking at a friend's church, and he was a fairly new pastor there. I've been there six months, uh, a year or so. And I started out by saying how excited I was to be there and uh, how much their pastor had told me about the church, and particularly that it was probably the most pharisaical church he'd ever been a part of. And as I kind of went on, the room got strangely quiet. Uh, because if you've uh, been a Christian very long, you know that uh, calling somebody a Pharisee is not exactly the, the, a compliment. Uh, if you've been around Christianity, uh, you probably think of somebody who's pompous, arrogant, uh, judgmental, uh, a bunch of extra uh, biblical rules and looks down on everybody else and everything like that. Uh, if this, you're brand new here in your journey of uh, exploring Christianity, the Bible, and Jesus, uh, you probably don't know uh, a whole lot about Pharisee, but you do know this. If somebody calls you one, it's not a good thing. It's, it's made its way into our culture. But uh, what might surprise many of us is in the days of Jesus, to the average person, uh, the, uh, being called a Pharisee would be kind of a spiritual compliment. Because people of that day thought of the Pharisees as the spiritual Navy SEALs. Uh, they were the people who were going uh, further and, uh, and, and working harder and were more committed than, than anybody else. Uh, so much so that, uh, for instance, Jesus actually played the Pharisee card one time to get a major point across. Uh, in in uh, a passage of Scripture called the Sermon on the Mount... Uh, in, in Matthew chapter 5, the first chapter of it, he has a series of six statements where he says, well, you have heard this, but I tell you this, and he would raise the bar a little bit higher. Now, uh, he was explaining there what it takes to get into the kingdom of heaven, and he bookended this series of six statements you've heard, but I tell you this way. On the front end, he said this, if you want to enter the kingdom of heaven, your own personal righteousness has to surpass that of the scribes and the Pharisees. You've heard, but I tell you. You've heard, but I tell you. Six times. Then he says at the end, so therefore, be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Now, I don't know about you, but if, if somebody, if Jesus comes up to you and says, here's how you get into heaven, be perfect like the heavenly Father, that's somewhat distressing, is it not? It's like, oh my gosh. Well, what you need to understand is the front end was as well. They didn't go, oh, we got to be better than the Pharisees. They're losers. I learned that in Sunday school. No. At that point, the Pharisees were, as I said, they were the Navy SEALs, the most committed and the best of the best. And so what Jesus was telling them was, you can't get in. He was driving them to their knees so they would understand their need of Him. Now, we do the strangest thing with passages like that. Here, Jesus gives us this ruler, and, and righteousness is way up there, and he's, it's a ruler or a measuring rod to see how short we are, but it's not long until you and I, and I do the same thing, we take it, and we run over here to find people shorter than us, and we use it to see how tall we are. But the whole purpose of it was, no, it doesn't work. He played that card to blow them away. You had to be more righteous than the most righteous person they had and most committed people they had in their mind. Uh, the Apostle Paul plays that same card uh, in a, uh, one of his letters <coughs> where he talks about the supremacy of knowing Jesus versus, uh, over all religiousness. And he says, uh, I used to be a Pharisee. And none of them went, well, big deal, loser. They went, you're kidding. And you gave that up? He goes on and he says, and I count it all scubala, which is a, a Greek word that uh, I can't translate real accurately or I'll never be invited back. 
But uh, let's just say it's rubbish, it's garbage, it's uh, not good stuff. And he says, that's what I count my Phariseeism as. And they're just, they're blown away as, as, as you could be. So what happened? How did the best of the best, the most committed of the committed, become so messed up? How did the good go bad? I mean, they started with a hunger for Scripture. They studied it like no one else. They applied it like no one else. And then they made a subtle, dangerous step where they decided that they were going to be the defenders of God, as if poor old God needed a little Rottweiler to protect him. And once they began to do that, they began to raise the bar. They began to thin the herd. They began to take it upon themselves to be the judges to walk through the field and decide which wheat was wheat and which was weeds and to pull it up as it was growing before it was finished. And when God showed up, the very people who most wanted to defend God's honor and who everybody thought was doing the best job of it turned on God, and they killed him. And here's what I want you to understand. It wasn't on purpose. The Pharisees became what we call Pharisees today, accidentally. They meant something else. And the same thing happens to us when we start down this little slide, which we can. We don't realize what's happening. It's all accidental. You see, you become a Pharisee somewhat like you have dinner at Denny's. No one plans to go there. You just end up there. (laughs) Right? It's just kind of like, how did this happen? You know, And so today what I want to do is I want to explore with you the dark side of the spiritual commitment we're all called to have, the, the dark side of passion for God that no one often talks about because we're always trying to stir ourselves up and stir other people up to, you know, go, go further and run harder, which is all really good. I hope you want to be in the front of the following Jesus line, but there are dangers there. A couple of them, if we aren't careful, our passion can drown out our compassion. We can become so dialed into what is right, we forget about being righteous. We can be so dialed into truth that we forget about being good. There's a, a, a church that that happened to uh, in, in our Bibles. Uh, in, the, in the book of uh, Revelation, the very last book uh, in, in your Bible, uh, it's, it starts out with a series of seven letters to seven different churches. And one of them is a church called Ephesus. There's a, a book in our Bibles called uh, Ephesians that was written to them. It was a church with great pedigree. Uh, the Apostle Paul started it. They had a guy named Timothy as their pastor for a long time. I mean, he was pretty cool. He has two books named after him in the Bible. Uh, would you agree with me? That's good pedigree. Uh, And yet somehow within just a a, a number of years, because the Apostle John was still alive when all this happened, everything had gone bad. They were eating at spiritual Denny's. And the Lord shows up, and, and in this letter, he says, listen, I know all of your deeds. You work as hard as anybody, and I know your doctrine. You test people to see if they're true, and I know you have no openness for wickedness and sin. You go after it. And when everybody else is weary and ready to quit, you persevere. Now, I don't know about you, but that sounds like a great church to me. Does it to you? I mean, it's the kind of church you get in buses, and let's all go find what their secret is. But when Jesus shows up, he doesn't say, this is so good about your truth, your doctrine, your perseverance, your passion. He says, I got a problem here. You have lost your first love. 
Now, when I first uh, was exposed as a Christian to this, this passage and this story, uh, I thought of the uh, church in Ephesus as the Righteous Brothers Church because they lost the love and feeling. And uh, in reality, that's not what it says because they had not lost their passion or commitment to God at all. Like sometimes I heard people preach on it and, you know, it's a great drive-by guilting passage. Uh, and, uh, oh, man, I'm not quite where I was. But the truth of the matter is, what they had lost, the Greek word there is agape. They had lost their ability to put the needs and interests of others as more important than their own. They had lost the 1 Corinthians 13, which is a famous passage on love, description of kindness and gentleness and not keeping account of wrongs and all of that. They were so into being right for God, they were no longer righteous. They were so long to being in the truth, they were no longer loving. And the Lord shows up and says, I'm going to pull a candlestick out. How did it happen? It happened accidentally. The other thing we can easily do is we send a subtle message. Uh, and, and the message is that grace is only available for those who deserve it. <laughs> now, now think about that. That's somewhat of an oxymoron because grace is unmerited favor. Uh, but uh, when we start down uh, the path of becoming an accidental Pharisee, what happens is we wake up one day and we're running around judging who's worthy of grace. And we wonder, how do we get there? And we got there just like we got with dinner at Denny's. So here's what I want to do in the balance of our time. We're going we're gonna to take a look at the most unlikely of disciples who Jesus was really impressed with, but the world wouldn't be too impressed with, and a lot of us as longtime Christians wouldn't be impressed with, and some of us who are starting a journey, we'd say, man, that's me, but I'm a loser. We're going to explore his life, but there's first a couple of things I want to talk about uh, regarding uh, things we need to remember when it comes to discipleship or following Jesus. And the first is this. The most dangerous place to be is not, is not the back of the following Jesus line. It's at the front of the line. Now, you wouldn't think so, because where we want to be, right, is at the front of the following Jesus line. That's kind of the goal. But we do need to understand, as cool as that is, and as, as proper as that goal is, that's where the danger lies. If somebody's a, a, a world-class mountain climber, and they're going to the world-class peaks. Uh, where does all the danger lie? At base camp or towards the peak of the mountain? Talk to me. The peak, right? Uh, in fact, and every year there are, are world-class climbers who die. <coughs> Sometimes it's of no fault of their own. I think of the avalanches that happened, the avalanche that happened at Everest this year and killed a host of, of climbers. But every single year, there are people who die, not because of an avalanche, but because of their cockiness and their experience, and they were so good, they decided to take a risk a novice would never take. And as the weather is changing, they decide they can beat that weather change. As, as, as some ice is more dangerous in an area, they decide, yeah, but I know how to go there. And all of the danger is at the very place that they want to be. It's the same spiritually. I want to be at the front of the following Jesus line. But here's the crevice that lies there. It's called pride. Now, we all know that pride's no good. It's, but it's kind of one of those stained glass concepts or phrases that we understand, but we don't really get our hands around it. There's a passage uh, in the book of uh, Proverbs where 
where we are t- the Lord says, there are six things I hate, yea, seven. And I'm always telling people, I wish he would have told me, is it six or seven? I don't get it. I'll ask him someday. <clears throat> but this I do know. The number one thing on the list, do any of you have an idea? Number one on the I hate it when you do that list is pride. But fortunately, he doesn't use the word pride because, you know, it's so ethereal out there. He actually described what pride looks like. He says, haughty eyes. In other words, God says, I hate it when you look down on others. And that changes everything for me. Because when I hear pride not being very good, I go, well, yeah, I kind of got to work on it a little bit. But haughty eyes, the tendency to look down on others, if I'm honest, boy, I can find that fast. You see, I think back to my journey with Jesus. I was one of those guys that when I came to Jesus, I came to Jesus. I mean, I made some really significant changes. And, and so kind of from like hanging back and knowing things but not following, I, I'm like 100 miles an hour now running towards the front of the line. And as I ran there, my eyes were on Jesus. And it felt like, like every week or month there was some new area where I just realized, oh my gosh, I got to do this. I should clean up this. I should change here. I should do there. There's some closet over here that I need to give over to him. Because uh, you know how it is. You start the journey and sometimes you're long into it and, and he can have anything but that room. And uh, he would start saying, no, I want to go look in that room. Oh, no, no, no. How about this one? I cleaned it up really nice. No, I want to see that one. And here's what happened. As I'm running on the line, my eyes on Jesus, really good, but somewhere around year one or two into my kind of fast pace move towards God, I started to notice something besides Jesus. I noticed some friends who weren't running as fast as I was. I noticed some who had kind of were panting on the sideline and actually were taking a break. I had a few others who not only took a break, but they even went backwards a little bit. And instead of feeling how lucky I was to be in the line and how far I had to go, I started thinking how lucky Jesus was to have me and how far I've gone. Folks, that's what Hadi Eyes is. Haughty eyes is when I meet somebody who doesn't know what I know and I roll my eyes and look down on them. Haughty eyes is when I meet someone who hasn't yet come to the point of giving over something I've given over to the Lord, I look down on them. Haughty eyes is when I have any trace of, he's lucky to have me on his team. And it's accidental and it's subtle. It just slowly happens. And it's a big deal. It's number one on his I hate it when you do that list. I like to tell the guys in our church that this is how big a deal pride is. God would rather have you struggling with porn than pride. And they all look at me like, what? Now, please don't tweet or blog that Larry's pro-porn, okay? (laughs) Give me a break. I'm not, but I'm saying this. We've forgotten how wicked pride is. I actually one time heard a, 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 a pastor, a radio pastor, say this. You know, I struggle with pride just big time. And he just kind of went on. And it was like he was saying, and I drive too fast on the freeway once in a while. See, the closer we get to the top, the more we can forget the priorities that God has. It's a danger. The second thing we need to remember is this. The Bible's definition of a disciple includes some people we would never include. From the Pharisees of old being mad at Jesus for hanging around people they didn't think deserved it to today, God's definition of who a disciple, simple word mathetes means follower, God's definition of a follower of Jesus has always included some people that uh, we're hesitant to include. 
And people who, because of that, sometimes feel that they're completely unworthy. And one in particular is a guy we're going to take a deep dive into today. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Now, if you're brand new at your spiritual journey, you never heard of this dude at all. So it's like all new. For some of you who've been Christians for a long time, it's like, oh, I know who Joseph is. He's the rich guy whose tomb Jesus borrowed uh, between his death and his resurrection, and he got it right. But the thing is, Joseph is, he's mentioned in all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the stories of Jesus. Uh, and, and, and he's pretty well known by longtime Christians, but he's really, when you get to his story, he's not known at all. Nobody has a clue who he is. So let's take a dive and find out uh, who this guy was and uh, what he has to teach us about our own spiritual journey and uh, how easy it is to slide into spiritual Denny's. Joseph Arimathea. Uh, the, the, the thing about him is uh, his role was incredibly important. Now, I've got to be honest with you. For many years as a pastor, uh, I knew of him, but I saw him as like a conjunction, you know, a conjunction that makes a long run-on sentence work. Uh, and so I knew all about the death of Jesus over here. I'd study that in great depth. Uh, I, I knew about the resurrection of Jesus over here. And, of course, you had to have a tomb for him to go into in between. Uh, and that's where I missed it because I was kind of like a fish in water, and we can be that way when we study the Bible. Uh, you know, you ask a fish, how's the water? What's a fish going to say? What water? It's all its nose. And, and, and when we read the Bible, we can do the same thing. I do it. I read it through the lens of life as I've known it. So I always thought this. He died. Well, he had to be buried somewhere, and then he rose. Big deal. Uh-uh. Let me take you a little back in history. Uh if you were crucified, first of all, a Roman citizen couldn't even be crucified. So if you were crucified, you were like the lower rungs to begin with, and it was reserved for the worst of the worst. So if you were crucified in those days, what they did is they did not take your body down and put it in a nice little gravesite, like we have our paupers' gravesites and stuff like that. No, they took your body down. There was no ACLU to make sure everything was done right. They took your body down and they threw it on the garbage heap. And within 24 to 48 hours, it was gone. The first time I realized that, I went, Joseph is no conjunction. He's the rather pivotal part of the story, right? No Joseph, no resurrection. And then as I began to uh, study a little bit more, uh, I I found out other things. He fulfilled one of the... uh, most amazing Old Testament messianic prophecies. You know, in the early church, one of the major ways they they shared and tried to prove that Jesus was indeed the Messiah was taking prophecies about the coming of the Messiah and showing how Jesus matched him. Uh, And uh, there are a few that were head-scratching and that clearly only Jesus could meet. And one of them is found in Isaiah chapter 53, verse 9. Isaiah 53, 9, and it reads this way. It says of the Messiah that he was assigned a grave with a, excuse me, uh, it, it says he will die as a condemned man and be assigned to a grave with the wicked, yet be buried with the rich. So the point is, he's going to die a condemned man, he's going to be assigned a grave with the wicked, which is thrown on the garbage heap, but somehow, somehow, he's going to be buried with the rich. And guess what? Joseph was a guy that made that happen. I, I imagine, I bet they had prophecy conferences like we do. 
You know, we take all the speculative passages that will be fulfilled accurately, but we don't quite know what they mean, so we have conferences and draw charts and tell everybody our best guess. Uh, Well, they did that on the first coming, and I can imagine the charts and the arrows trying to describe how this would work out. And of course, when it happened, it happened exactly as God said, and Joseph got to do that. Oh, one more thing about Joseph. He had the privilege of being the one who gave Jesus the first step in his exaltation. Let me explain what I mean. In the book of Philippians, we're told to do nothing out of selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind to regard the interests of others as more important than our own. We're to have the same attitude that Jesus had, who, though he existed in the form of God, did not regard that equality with God something to be held on to tightly, but emptied himself, taking on the form of a man. And then in that passage, talks about him humbling himself all the way to the cross where he died for our sins. And then it says, therefore, because of that, the Father highly exalted him. Now, think with me in the life of Jesus. When Jesus first was born, the very first place he was put was in a what? Talk to me. A manger. What is a manger? It's a feeding trough. Cleaned out as best they could, borrowed feeding trough. Talk about humility. This is the king of kings, the creator of the universe, and his first step of humility is to be placed in a place we wouldn't put any of our kids. And then it gets worse from there, all the way to dying as a criminal on our behalf. But after he's finished, he's going to be exalted. So where is the very first place he is put after his crucifixion? In the tomb of a rich man. See, Joseph's a pretty good dude. Very important to the story. Fulfilling a prophecy that is just unbelievable and powerful. And having the privilege of being involved in the first step of Jesus' exaltation. So what kind of guy was he? Well, here we go. Grab your Bible, and uh, whether it's, uh, uh, you know, on your phone or uh, uh, iPad or uh, old school, whatever it is, and find Matthew, because we're going to take a quick look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the, the, the four stories of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And uh, we're going to look at these verses about this guy named Joseph and see what kind of guy he was, because he's the least likely guy you and I would ever pick for the roles I just talked about. We start in Matthew chapter 27, verse 57 through 61. Matthew chapter 27, way at the back of it, 57 to 61. As evening approached, there came a rich man from Arimathea named Joseph who had himself become a disciple of Jesus. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body, and Pilate ordered it to be given to him. So Joseph took the body, wrapped it in a clean linen cloth. He placed it in his own new tomb that he had cut out of the rock. He rolled a big stone in front of the entrance of the tomb, and he went away. Now Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were sitting there opposite of the tomb. So there's one other thing that, that Matthew throws in the story, and that's who else was there, and it was the women, which means who was not there. Talk to me. The men, the disciples. That's going to be very important later on. Okay? Now, here's the first two things we learned from Matthew. Number one, he was rich. Uh, that's kind of important today in some circles, especially if you're 30 and younger. Uh, because uh, Christianity's always had a bunch of legalism around it. It's just our nature. Uh, we like to take God's laws and then add a few extra ones just in case for good measure. Uh, and legalism is a strange thing because legalism is a rule that's not found in the Bible but based on a Bible verse. 
So, uh, you know, you can never argue with a legalist because they always have a Bible verse to defend whatever rule they're adding, but that rule is never actually found in the Bible. Now, when I was growing up, legalism was a series of things that aren't as significant right now in some circles. Uh, For instance, when I was growing up, one of the real things that was important was what was in your refrigerator. And you had the wrong thing in your refrigerator, you're probably going to hell. Uh, and, uh, but, but I work with a lot of 40, 30, and, and, and the late 20 uh, pastors, and uh, they no longer worry very much what's in anybody's refrigerator, but they do worry what's in the driveway. And if it's too nice or too good, not a real Christian, because you should be using all that money to dig wells in Africa or something. So it's almost like being rich and a, a full-on disciple has become an oxymoron. So the first thing I want you to note is, He's rich. And the second thing I want you to note is he's a genuine disciple if you're jotting these things down. The Bible calls him a disciple, a mathetes, a follower of Jesus in the eyes of God. Now, turn over to Mark. Uh, Mark is to the right, the very next book, and find uh, Mark chapter 15, verses 42 to 47. Mark 15, 42 to 47. And we find a little more about him. Mark 15, 42 says, It was preparation day, that is the day before the Sabbath. So as evening approached, Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent member of the council, who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, looking forward to the Messiah, went boldly to Pilate and asked for Jesus' body. So we find two things. We find he was a prominent member of the council, or Sanhedrin, and he was bold and courageous in the eyes of God. Let me talk about those. The council he's talking about is called the Sanhedrin. It was made up of 70 people plus a high priest, and it was essentially the spiritual senate for Jerusalem and the Israelites. Now, he was not just a member of that very prestigious group. He was a what member? Prominent, very important, prominent. And we find out also that he was rather bold and courageous in the eyes of God. And I understand that. Again, no ACLU. (laughs) Pilate has just killed a criminal, and you go up and you say to Pilate, like, hey, that's my main man, you know, the guy you just crucified. Can I have his body and put it in my tomb? (laughs) That's, like, risky. And if you're a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, they're the group of people who claim that Jesus blasphemed and turned him over to the Romans to be crucified. And now you step forward and say, really, he's my main man. Can I have the body? I want to put it in my tomb. So we got those things. Now let's go to Luke. Matthew, Mark, then Luke, and find Luke chapter 23, verses 50 to 54. Rich, a genuine disciple, a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, bold and courageous, and now this. Now there was a man named Joseph, verse 50, a member of the council, which we now know is prominent, a good and upright man who had not consented to their decision and action. Huh. He's a part of the council. What kind of part of the council? A what? Prominent member. He's good and upright in the eyes of God. And he did not agree or consent or sign off to their decision. Now, that creates a problem. 
Because as you read the rest of Scripture, there's, there's no sense that they all weren't there. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, you can walk around the whole city in half a day. It's not a big thing. And if, at a major event and a major place like that, they, they're not going to go forward with a meeting and have a prominent member not there and go, oh, it's okay, let's just go on. So clearly and obviously, he was at the meeting where they called him a blasphemer and turned him over to be killed. He didn't ex- consent or agree with it. How in the world can that be? I mean, was he like lying in the weeds? Was he cowering in the corner? Well, the book of John tells us. So turn one more passage over to the right and find then the Gospel of John, chapter 19, starting in verse 38. A rich, genuine disciple who was a prominent member of the Sanhedrin, bold and courageous, at least when he stepped forward, a good and upright man who didn't agree with their decision. What's up with that? Well, now we read it. John 19, 38. Later, Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. Now, Joseph was a disciple of Jesus. Second time we're told that. But what? Talk to me. Secretly. What? How can you be a secret disciple? Like, what's with that? And why? Because he feared the Jewish leaders. He was afraid of what he would lose. The passage goes on and says, with Pilate's permission, he came and he took the body, and he was accompanied by another guy named Nicodemus, who in John chapter 3 sneaks away at night, another leader, and, and, and meets with Jesus and wants to know who he is and what his message is. So here's what we got. I, the category I use is not yet ready. We have a chicken Christian (laughs) hiding in the weeds because he's afraid of what he might lose. And God uses him mightily when his time comes. Think about that. And remember, where were the disciples when all this happened? They were nowhere to be seen. There's three take-homes I want to leave with you today that come out of the story of Joseph and the danger of becoming an accidental Pharisee. And they are simply this. Number one, the story is is never over until it's over. If you and I could have been kind of lingering in some time machine or whatever, and we didn't know the whole story, we'd be watching, and, and we'd see this, uh, uh, this large group of disciples following Jesus, uh, among them a, a kind of his uh, hand-picked group of 12, uh, and, and they would have left everything to follow him, and, and Jesus had some hard sayings about, you know, all the cost of following him, and we'd look at them, and we'd go, man, they are doing it all. They've left their business behind. Uh, they're willing to, to, to follow him, and yeah, Peter turns, and chickens out for a while, but he comes back, and, and we would go, that's what a real Christian is. And then we look over to Joseph, and we would, let's say we had the ability to know that he was a follower of Jesus. He stepped over that line, but man, he was hanging out at the very back, hiding in the bushes. And we look at him and go, man, let me show you. 
Look up loser in the dictionary, and this is the guy you'll see. But the story wasn't over. When Jesus' body is hanging there limp and dead, all of those people who left everything to follow him, all of those radical Christians were so, they're gone. Absolutely gone. And a guy who's been totally chicken gets the tap on the shoulder and steps forward at his time and says, I'm going to do something bold and courageous. He's my guy. Can I have his body? How often do we jump ahead when the story's not over? For some of you who are brand new, you're beating yourself up because it's like, you know, I'm not saying hang at the back of the line. It's not the place you want to be. But I am telling you, stay in the line. God has a plan and got a place. It will happen. For some of us who are at the front of the line and feeling all so good and proud of ourselves, looking down on others, there's a warning. And the warning is this. It's not over till it's over. Who would have ever guessed Joseph would be the star? Not the conjunction, the linchpin in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. Even John the Baptist's disciples had the guts to come get his body after he was beheaded. Jesus didn't. Jesus' disciples didn't. The second principle is this. We're going to be judged as we judge others. It comes from Matthew chapter 7, verses 2 to 5, where, where Jesus says, judge not, and people stop there. But uh, he doesn't just say judge not. The rest of the passage tells us how to do fruit inspection. Uh, but judge not lest you be judged. And then the rest of the sentence goes this way. Because the measure you use to judge others is a measure that will be used to judge you. God basically has a judgment pattern he wants to give me, and it runs through the filter of what Jesus Christ has done for me. But the passage in the Bible is actually saying, but Larry, if you want to use a different standard as you rail on those who struggle or whatever it is, that's fine. I'll use that standard on you. You get to choose which standard is used. And it is amazing to me how easy it is. I've been there. I've done that. For us to forget God's patience and grace with us as we're impatient and ungraceful with others. I grew up, you look up in the dictionary, find Christian home, and I grew up in it. Uh, I don't go through life with a father wound. I have a father hero. It's like I don't have any of that baggage to explain in any way why it took me so long to really follow Jesus. But it is so weird that a year or two into following Jesus, I was ready to rip to shred spiritually anybody who was hanging back like I had hung back. Unwilling to give the grace that God had given to me. And I didn't know it, but I was pulling in the parking lot of spiritual Denny's. Accidentally, on my way, as I thought I'm protecting God and pushing forward for righteousness and all this, accidentally, on my way, to being opposed to his work. And the third thing is this. If our definition of a disciple doesn't have room for a Joseph of Arimathea, we don't have the same definition Jesus does. We're becoming that church in Ephesus I talked about. We're becoming that accidental Pharisee with the best of intentions, trying to help thin the herd, trying to help raise the bar, and being opposed to everything God is doing. Because Jesus came to expand the kingdom, not thin the herd. 
And Jesus came to lower the bar and to pray the, pay the price, not to raise the bar, to keep riffraff out. As individuals, as a church locally, and as a church universally, this is one of the most important things for us to hold on to. That we never lose the heart of God and the love of God as we pursue our commitment and our passion for God. My prayer is simply this, that what we've looked at today, you will walk out with, not as a pair of binoculars to check out everybody else, but as a mirror to ask some of the hard questions. How can I make sure I don't go to Denny's? How can I make sure I stay on Jesus' team and not the accidental Pharisee team? Father, would you take these things and would you use them to to create in us as individuals, create in this great church as a church, and create in the church universal a pattern and a heart that matches yours. In the name of Jesus, amen.